We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be talking about the excellent 4-1 victory away to Sunderland. It's been a really good weekend of football, from a personal point of view as well. Uh, my boy has just joined the team, um, and they were 4-1 down today. And they came back in the last five minutes to draw 4-4. That was quite exciting. Uh, Arsenal obviously winning 4-1 at Sunderland. Um, yeah, I was a bit worried before the game. I know uh, they've been in absolutely horrendous form, Sunderland. But, you know, it's that time of the season. We're picking up a few injuries, suspension in midfield to Xhaka. We've had to rotate a little bit and we, we obviously dropped points last weekend. So I was like, oh dear. You know, as a run of games coming up, it's going to be quite difficult. So I was a bit concerned about how we would bounce back. But, you know... At this point in the season, it's great to have players on the bench who can make a big difference and something we haven't been able to do at this sort of stage in previous seasons. So at 1-1, it was quite low, really, quite a low point because we were dominating the game and many chances and didn't take them. And then, oh, Jermaine Defoe penalty, like, oh, God, what is going on? But Oliver Giroud off the bench, Ramsey, see, if we had those two players against Borough, I know have been said many times over, I really think they would have made a massive difference to that game. But it's gone. But they made a big difference this time, especially Giroud. Two, <laughs> two attempts on goal. No, two touches, wasn't it? Two goals. Um, great goals they were too. So, and Alexis Sanchez looks fantastic again up front, which is great. It's still continuing. Yeah, we, 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 are, we are looking in good shape. Looking in good shape. And, and to make the weekend even more enjoyable, Jose Mourinho once again fails to win at home. Oh, it's hilarious. And I'm, I'm loving every moment of it. I'm enjoying his downfall almost as much as I'm enjoying our, 
are excellent form. So long may that continue. So let me hand you over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast. Back off to Tottenham. Oh, that's going to be a big and going to be a big one. Anyway, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But uh, yeah, see you then. Bye. 12-man Sunderland put up valiant effort, but in the end, Martin Atkinson's men go down 4-1, and it is another victory for the Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Try as he might, Atkinson could not get his men over the line, although it was a valiant effort. Um, We will discuss really what was a vintage performance from him, less so from his men uh, from Sunderland, and some great performances from Arsenal, notably uh, Alexis Sanchez, but we got to get down to brass tacks. Uh, Paul's here. We'll get to him in a moment. Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. i got to start with you just really quickly because there was some some troubling stuff that happened in our offline chat, and I, I want to get to it really, really quickly. Um, why do you think Paul hates Alexis Sanchez? <laughs> I, I, it, it stunned me. If you Obviously, you're not on the offline chat, listeners, listener, mom. Um, Paul declared decidedly that he wants Olivier Giroud back in the starting lineup at center forward and Alexis removed from the position. It was really a stunning admission. Uh, We'll give Paul a chance to explain that. I guess I should introduce him. Paul, hello. Thank you for coming on to explain your position. Um, So we we will get to that, of course. Um, But let's get down to the serious business of discussing the game. And uh, it was a return to the midfield of Kakelneni, which... You know, I, I had some uh, apprehension about before the game. Gibbs kept his spot, um, and I, I think you could say he deserved it, whether or not Monreal was was injured. I, I, I think you could say that he's he's kind of played his way into, uh, into a potential opportunity there. But let's talk about really the man of the match, the man of the league, the man who is at this moment in time unplayable, Alexis Sanchez. Tim, what... What has been the spark for this incredible run of form? Yes, yeah, it's, it's been. I, I was trying to think um, the other day. I, I think I'm right in saying he started every single Premier League game up front now. Um, that we we've not we've literally not gone with anyone else um, in the Premier League or the Champions League. And I think what we're seeing is just. Um, I, I don't think so much. It's a case of him getting used to the position. Um, and I, I, I tweeted it out this morning. Um, I was reminded of a piece that Michael Cox wrote about a year ago saying that Alexis should be playing up front. He thinks that would be his best position. And I was minded to revisit that article and it, it, it became quite prescient. But one of the things I worried about with Alexis up front was can he retrain his instincts and you know stop himself drifting out of that position and getting involved in the build-up play? And what we've seen is he, he hasn't done that at all. And um, instead, what has happened is the whole team have retuned to his strengths, basically. They've understood what he does. And so now what happens is when he does come out of that role, which he does quite frequently, and actually he's quite good then at playing those kind of whip balls behind the fullback or even behind the centre-halves who really then don't know what to do um, and end up quite often like neither coming out to close him down or staying back and picking up the run they end up quite often just doing neither and you get a good runner in behind and what everyone seems to have realized is oh well if i run in behind um i've got i've got a really good chance um and you know mesut ozil's um got 
got that. Uh, Theo Walcott always had that. That's what he does anyway. Um, I think Chamberlain's starting to get that. And then, even in the first half, you had Francis Coquelin um, breaking away. And he was clear at one point, and you know it was probably the last player in our team you wanted to be clear in that situation because he kind of hesitated. And it, I think it wasn't uh, a highlight of his season. Let's put it that way. No, no. <laughs> and I think what you've seen is basically the team have just kind of really worked out his strengths. And what I was really interested in is when he scored that first goal, which, by the way, what a brilliant orthodox striker's goal that is. And, um, showing I, showing that size and strength, you know, all the traditional cliches are not necessarily needed to play, no. to score traditional center forward goals if you have a willingness to, to work off the ball and an awareness for where to be. Indeed. And, and yeah, exactly, picking up the space. Like, Aguero scores lots of headers. He's brilliant at it. And it's not because he beats players in the air. It's because he picks up the spaces. Um, and the same with Tim Cahill as well was was brilliant at doing that. Um, but yeah, I, and I think the speed and the conviction with which he acknowledged Chamberlain after he scored that goal just makes me think that that was something that they perhaps worked on. Or perhaps Alexis just said to Chamberlain and other players in the team, do you know what, you can chuck a cross in if I'm in there. And someone posted a video today actually of his kind of his 50 Arsenal goals because he's reached that milestone now. Mm-hmm. And actually a surprising amount of them are headers and they are quite typical centre forward headers. So, you know, him getting up and arriving in the box. And and actually I, I appreciate he came on and scored scored a header and another goal from across himself. But I mean that that really if Alexis is scoring goals like that, it kind of takes away Giroud's USP in terms of being a starter even more. Because if Alexis is just as capable of scoring headed goals from crosses, then you know that that might this might just be a one-off. Um, but like I said, he has scored quite a few headers for Arsenal. If he, if he's got that dimension as well, if and if as I kind of suspect, I, I don't know. I may be reading too much into it. But if as I suspect, he's said to his teammates, "Look, don't be afraid to put a cross if I'm in the box because you know I'll compete for it." And, you know, that, that just adds an, another string to his bow. And I just thought creatively he was excellent. I thought on the shoulder he was excellent. In the area he was excellent. It was just an all-round excellent performance. It was all of his, everything we know and love about Alexis just rolled into one very delightful 90-minute performance. And I was, I think we all had slight qualms about, oh, well, well let's see how he plays as a number nine without Theo Walcott, who kind of does a lot of that running in behind and uh, and I appreciate it was only Sunderland but you know we've seen it now and he's probably turned in his best performance of the season without Theo so you know it's it's very very promising it's funny if you look at a chalkboard of <laughs> Alexis's touches right like where his touches come from um they're everywhere he's got like 15 in our defensive half 15 or 20 almost directly in the middle of the park and then, like, another 20 in, in the attacking third. Um, his willingness to run, <clears throat> to press, to come deeper for the ball and, and play, play, uh, play people in, he, he had a couple of brilliant through balls and over-the-top balls. I mean, you remember the pass he made from sort of the left half space into the right channel for Ozil, whose shot was a yeah, little bit tainted? Uh, no, no. That yeah. pass is extravagant it is phenomenal and he makes it from 
sort of nominally a number 10 position or where you'd expect Iwobi to be. There's no picking him up. There's no marking him. Um, he did get the opening goal. He wound up getting a second in the match. Um, Paul, I think we were disappointed with the work Elneny and Coughlin did in midfield against Burrow. Maybe not devastated by it, but but not thrilled with it. <clears throat> It seemed to work better today. One thing I noticed, Coughlin, about 35% of his passes went forward against Burrow. About 65% of them went forward in this match. He was a little more front-footed, too. He had more than double the ball recoveries. You know, he made tackles. He made interceptions. Um, what did you make of their play as contrasted against how they did um, against Burrow? And Elneny, by the way, incredibly busy with, uh, what, 98 passes at a 93%, 94% clip. I think he completed the most passes in, in the league uh, this weekend. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to give us credit, I think we kind of maybe called the way this game might go the last on the last pod. We're going to um, get to the fact that you said 20 minutes left to go. Giroud could be useful off the bat. We'll get to We'll give you your, your full credit for nailing that spot on. Yeah, but uh, all right. Well, we'll come back to that in a little <laughs> bit. I, I got to say, I'm a now that you guys are finished rubbing oil on each other for the first 10 minutes there, yeah. um, i got to say I'm a bit gutted by Tim. He called me prescient this morning, and we're not on this 30 seconds before he calls Michael Cox prescient. Is this, you know, it feels like it's all taken back away from me. But anyway, To be, to be fair, um, we can't really give you the star treatment on the podcast. It can get totally out of control. Yeah, because you guys have run out of oil rubbing on each other for the we've first run, well, five we've, minutes we've, over. Yes, that that's true. Um, so we've run out of superlatives for you as well, Paul. All right. Well, let's stick with the perlatives. Okay. Um, so the way we played. So I thought this was really interesting. The the uh, I think the key to the Cochrane El Nenny and the difference between this game and the last was Sunderland played with a higher line. And they actually played and they actually had three players up attacking from time to time. So, you know, we did talk about Cochrane will do better when there's an actual midfield to battle. And there was a midfield to battle. And I think it played really into everybody's game. There was just that bit more space. You know, think of the number of balls in behind in the first half. There were 2-2 two, two Ozil. There was... Uh, Chamberlain was through one-on-one. There was Cockland, for God's sake, uh, streaking into the box. I mean, it was uh, Iwobi was through at some point. There was that gap there that there just wasn't uh, in the Middlesbrough game. Mm. And they had players in midfield and players to fight against. But to uh, to the overall... Uh, now, calm down, Elliot. I'm not, not sure how you're going to come out of this one. I don't want to get you all fired up. Uh, I've just got to read this out because it blew my mind, uh, the the four four two passing stats. Um, so I'm going to th- go through the top 10 uh, passing connections because it's hilarious. Now, spot any of the attacking players, i.e. Alexis Ozil, Iwobi, or Oxlade-Chamberlain in these as I go down the list. So the biggest passing combination was Elneny Mustafi, which probably tells us a little bit of how the game went mm-hmm. at 17 passes. Then Gibbs Awobi. All right, you got me there. There's one of our attacking players. Then after that, Mustafi Elneny, Kishelny Mustafi, Elneny Gibbs, Elneny Kokolan, Gibbs Kishelny, Kishelny Elneny, Kokolan Elneny, Awobi Elneny, Elneny Kishelny, Gibbs Elneny, Bellerin Elneny, 
El Neni to Ozil. Hooray! Yeah. Ozil to Sanchez. Hooray! It doesn't Ozil sound super progressive as you're going through. <laughs> it doesn't. Now, if you didn't see the game, you'd think it was a terrible game. Well, you know, it was it was much better than that, but it tells you that underlying thing is still the issue. Uh, the, the thing you jumped on for the last game about Cazorla or Chaka making that connection through to Ozil or whoever. Mm-hmm. And if you look... If you look until we kind of brought the bench on, we had a lot of good chances, but not that many where you would say, well, we really should have. There were a lot of he should have scored, but really they shouldn't have. You wouldn't particularly expect Ozil. Well, you might I mean, expect the, the best Ozil chances did fall to Ozil. Tame shot from the right channel, the lob that didn't come off, which, you know, I mean, I think people made it sound like yeah. that was a much easier skill than it was, but. With a player yeah, of that skill, one- you expect it to come off. Sure. It's a one-off situation. Ozil could very well have scored that one, but it's still probably not 50-50. And the one from the right, the kind of mirror uh, uh, Thierry Henry, open up your body kind of shot, is not something I expected him to finish, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a much harder finish to... So anyway, my, my point being, 1-0 up, and then when we s- screwed up on the penalty 1-1 wasn't that astonishing a scoreline despite you know lots of good play lots of creativity lots of through balls from midfield by typically Sanchez um so we could well have been in a world of hurt in this game as we kind of were when it went to 1-1 yeah I I mean I I I thought we played brilliantly throughout the game so much so that actually when it went to 1-1 and we made the change to bring Giroud on, I didn't want us to make the change because I felt that we were still playing our way through them and creating opportunities and that the opportunities would continue to be there. Now, as it turns out, that was daft but, on my part. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I won't, I won't <clears throat> talk it, but it was actually that 10 minutes just before the subs and just after their pe- before and after their penalty that they were actually well in the game at that point. Up till that, it looked like we were, we were running the game. Well, but the funny thing was, is... Had we been given the penalty we deserved before their penalty, sure, <clears throat> the game would have been put to bed. So, well, let, let's do this. I, I don't want to spend forever talking about referees because they're not why we <clears throat> uh, pay to go or you know watch or wh- whatever the case may be or you know find an illegal stream. Um, I, I want to get to Oxley Chamberlain because I think there's there's fertile ground for discussion there and Giroud as well, whose contribution was magnificent. The return of Ramsey, Mustafi's passing. There's so many great things to address in this game, but. Tim, I think we have to address Atkinson at least for a minute. Now, there's no question he got some of the big decisions wrong. The Alexis penalty was a penalty. But one of the things that I'm impressed with, in the past when teams have rotationally fouled us, we've let it get to us and take us off our game. Atkinson's refereeing, more even than the penalty decision he got wrong, I think really allowed Sunderland to do that rotational fouling. And and they could have had players sent off in the first half, multiple players, if he had been more, uh, I think, not even strict, just more appropriate in, in application of the rules, were you impressed with how we handled those tactics? And what did you think of of Atkinson with respect to how he allowed those tactics to play out? It's amazing how this rule everyone discovered a couple of weeks ago about Doesn't Granit exist Xhaka, anymore. Yeah, yeah has <laughs> yeah. mysteriously disappeared. The, the one that no one had ever heard of before. And now no one's ever heard of it since, funnily enough. That's, that's, I find that very odd. 
Um, I, I was very impressed because um, they were very even-tempered about it. And actually, sometimes I think that's frustrated people, myself included, about Arsenal that, um, you know, we're not, uh, for want of a better word, bastardly enough. But it's um, weird, but right, because it used to be we don't like it up us, and that's how you get us yeah. off our game. And that's why I think people got frustrated. But we didn't let it stop what we wanted to do or disrupt our game no. this, this, on this no. occasion. It, it looks like we've hit that kind of happy medium between being a bit too meek and accepting and, yeah, not you know not getting too wound up with the referee or, or the opponents. We, we seem, certainly in this game, to have hit that balance. And this was certainly a game where Martin Atkinson... I had the impression in the first five minutes that he had the thought in his head, oh, Sunderland, the bottom of the league, and they need help. And I think you see this a lot with referees, and I just find it infuriating, like they're refereeing the under-9s or something rather than multi-millionaire adults, um, and that they think it's their job, even subconsciously, to get involved in that. You know how like when you're 3-0 up, you never get the penalty because the referee feels sorry for the opponents, and that's that's absolutely expressly not their job and um I, yeah i thought he was horrible i thought he had an awful game that you know the the one on alexis now i was in the upper tier at the other end and it it just looked absolutely i i accept that i'm not a neutral observer on this but it was just i was looking at it and i've looked at it several times in the replay since and i'm thinking to myself what does he think happened the human, the human leg can't swing that way <laughs> yeah. by design, right? Like you but can't, like, you can't run that way. Obviously, his yeah. leg gets clipped. Yeah, I mean, he's he's beaten the man. He's he's beaten him. All ends up, and he's moving towards the goal in the area. Um, it's you know, it's the fall of a man who's been tripped. I mean, it's not. There's nothing manufactured or even exaggerated about it. There is absolutely no... I mean, if he looked at that and thought the player got the ball, he shouldn't be a referee because his eyesight's not good enough. So I was looking at it and I was just thinking, you know, I know like referees have to make borderline calls and, and you know, in split seconds, and, and I completely understand that. But on this occasion, I just thought, I don't understand what angle there is to doubt this. I just don't understand what in his mind, he thinks happened or what he wasn't sure about um, because it was just absolutely clear-cut. And then he booked Alexis for complaining about it, which, you know, I, I think he was um, he was hankering to book Alexis. He wanted to do that. Um, he yeah. took a, a dislike uh, to him throughout the game. And I think you saw a bit of that in Alexis's second goal, considering it was the goal that made it 4-1. Um, he celebrated it quite vociferously, and you can tell he enjoyed it. And I think there was a lot of frustration actually being released um, when he celebrated that. So, and and you know that's that again to praise Alexis, I suppose. But it, it's kind of what the team did as well: channel it into that, channel it into the ball, score a goal, and then release the frustration. You know, that's that's in an ideal world. Yeah, and and not to be. It rude to Giroud, like who had an amazing day. But I think one thing we can say is that he's been a player in the past who has let referees get under his skin and affect his performance, yeah. not getting calls that he wants. And I just think Alexis is a, a hard bastard who nothing seems to affect him. He just wants to be on the ball and fight and run and play and, you know, then go home and do push-ups. Like, he just doesn't care. Um, and I, hit, I think he had a really good point because much of the rotational fouling, much of the point of it was Alexis. And he stayed on message. You know, he is a street kid. 
he is tough. Uh, on the one hand, it it made me think, be sympathetic to Giroud's plight because he's getting beaten up and banged every game. Um, but you saw how well Alexis handled it and how he, to I think Tim's point, used that as motivation, whereas Giroud can get all caught up in his knickers about it. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, we're in trouble. So um, I think part of the reason we handled it well is because Alexis was the focus of it and yeah. he handled it well. Yeah, I thought so. Um so, Paul, we, we had quite the debate offline, uh, the three of us, about yeah. Oxlade-Chamberlain. Um, before I get into the meat of that debate, why don't you give me your take on Ox's performance overall? Look, anything that gets you to watch the game a second time, and apparently it did. I did. I, well, great... I, I, I won't say that I watched it straight through. I watched patches of it in periods where he was involved because I really wanted to get a good feel for what he did well and where he may have struggled in the game. And I, it, it was, it was a, an interesting rewatch, but I want to get your, your yeah. initial thoughts on, on his contribution. Sure. Well, seeing as you were going to watch it again, I definitely watched it again. <laughs> uh, Who knew? I, I hope the, hope the drinking game is going strong out there at the moment. Always. Um, I, he was actually, as always, better the second time round. Uh, I'd actually been a bit critical of him in our chat, but overall I thought his positives outweighed his his negatives. Uh, but actually, I didn't see that he really... Tim said this on the chat. I didn't really see that he did much wrong. I mean, you could see all the seeds of the things Ox often does wrong, but he usually, you know, uh, take his eye off the ball when we're in defense. He was actually one of our biggest and most successful tacklers in the game. I think we all saw two or three times that caught the eye, which were Theo-esque, as in having disco- having read the memo about, it's a really good idea to get back and make a covering tackle. It'll probably keep you on the pitch a lot longer and get you more games. So, um, you know, he'd lose the ball and his head wouldn't drop. He'd get back and he'd chase back after it. Uh, he covered across midfield. Uh, we saw his attacking contribution. I'm sure you'll have a bit to say on that. Mm. His decision-making is, uh, and I won't steal your thunder on this. I mean, it's, I don't, the thing is, I don't think anybody, uh, I don't know when you get to your bit who you'd argue with, because I don't think anybody expected his decision-making to be great. We just wanted him to do more good than bad and to be a positive coming off the bench. And that's what, why I think there was a positive reaction that maybe I'm guessing you thought was a little over positive. We were just relieved that by and large, he was a significant plus, no real minus, but not necessarily that he's cured. He did really well on that cross. I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's a brilliant cross. And it's a brilliant burst to create the opportunity to play the ball in. It is. It's, it's, it's what you want out of. And in effect, he got in behind them which we could have really used at Middlesbrough, but nobody was doing. Um, and it's a nice contrast to what he's been doing f- for the last few weeks, which is ballooning it to the far touchline, which is where Alexis should have been if he was anticipating an Oxlade-Chamberlain cross. But this one was, was perfectly on the noggin, and uh, it was a gem. And I think his all-round general play was very good. If this was the only game I ever saw on Oxlade-Chamberlain, you know, I... I I'd argue tooth and nail against whatever the hell it was you were going to say against him next. But mm. of course it's part of, it's a context of other games and you can see the seeds of things he does so, uh, that have been a problem. But uh, one last thought, which mm-hmm. was, you know, we debated the EFL game. Uh, I don't think 
anybody to argue against this, but it was clearly, whatever you say about the game, he had a good game for an EFL game, even for an EFL game, and it helped his confidence, and he felt good coming into this, and he didn't, I think it stopped a lot of his hesitations and self-doubt. Yeah, look, if you're getting goals and you're getting assists, at some point the things you're doing wrong become less important than the things you're doing right, right? I mean, if a player scores three goals every game, gets three assists every game, and has a mare for the other 88 minutes, you'll take it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, unless he's a central defender or a goalkeeper, like, that's probably fine. Um, So a couple of things I noticed from watching his performance again. First of all, he has definitely worked on staying focused defensively. Um, We saw him get bypassed in the EFL Cup game. I wouldn't be surprised if he... Someone had a word in his ear about it. He had four tackles in this game. He covered defensively well, I thought, um, and stayed switched on. The The thing I think that's interesting about Oxlade-Chamberlain is he may be the only winger we have at the club right now. Um, mm. He can stand the touchline, get the old chalk on the boots, as they say, and whip in a cross or dribble a guy and burn him for pace up the up the wing. Theo could be that guy, but he's just proven time and again he wants to drift inside. Iwobi's heat map is almost always the same. It's hilarious. It's like the hot red part of his heat map is just above, like the the just inside the edge of the box, outside the edge of the box on the on the left side, but central, right? That left half space. The half um, space, yeah. right? Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. It's it's kind of a bad example because it wasn't a good game for Awobi by his standards. Um, if you look at a pass map, Awobi knitted everything together. He was really a part of the buildup, really a part of where the ball moved. Oxley Chamberlain, Chamberlain was not. He was detached from the buildup, and most of it went down more of Awobi's flank. The funny thing is, the reason I think Ox has frustrated me, and, and I think you guys will see where I'm going to go with this. He has been used mostly this season in lieu of Awobi on the left. I do not think we are as effective with Theo on the right and Ox on the left. Because neither of them are going to knit that play together, create those overloads, create those passing moves that allow Ozil to make deeper runs or Alexis to make the deeper runs or you know Theo to come in. Oxlade-Chamberlain replacing Theo gives us the same kind of balance. We have that that passing, that extra sort of midfield presence that Awobi creates, kind of like Ramsey did last season when he was playing on the wing. And then we have the, the sort of wide channel running player, um, in Ox or Theo, whichever one is playing. Oxlade-Chamberlain is still a player for me who looks his best when he is in situations where he can contribute as an individual more than when he can contribute as a teammate, which is funny for a player who got an assist in the game. But there were three key moments where he did things well individually but did not get his head up. And I I sent them to you on Twitter, uh, on WhatsApp, and you guys acknowledged that there are probably players that have moments like this in every game. One is... He does a really nice job to win the ball on the end line on the deep left flank, all the way in the end line. And he does an, executes a nice dribble, beats his man, and dribbles it into the box. You remember? Yep. He has two players at the top of the box. Instead, he opens his body and shoots tamely to the keeper from an acute angle. There was at the, the, near, at the, at near, the near post. post. Yep. There was a long ball where he was played in on the run. Now, in this case, I think it's the least damning on him. He's played through, I think it's on like 36 minutes. Um, he's in on goal. Or no, this one might have been like like 48 minutes. He's in on goal, but the defenders are right there. He takes a sort of in-stride first-time shot from 18 yards with Awobi and Alexis crashing into the box late with nobody defending them. That one maybe not so much. The other one is he collects the ball in the right channel from a through ball. Alexis is 
ahead of his man's dead center of the penalty area. He shoots badly wide of the far post, low and hard across the keeper. None of those individually are things that you sh- he should be crucified for. I think we need players who are willing to take take shots at goal, and he tends to be pretty good at shooting on goal. But I just think if you look at the plays, if you watch them carefully, it's not so much his decision. It's that he never gets his head up to see what's around him. And I think by and I large— I think the last mm-hmm. one was a bad cross. Do you? I, it, yeah. It, it felt— sh- Well, anyway, look, look, I watched it really carefully because I watched it back specifically for his contributions. I think when he starts to take a breath— have that composure. I remember when we used to say about Theo, when he doesn't have to think he's at his best, when he had time to think he was at his worst. I think Ox is in that phase of his development. When he gets that extra breath, when the game slows down a little for him, when he can get his head up and make decisions seeing the whole pitch, assuming he gets there, I think he's going to be a much better player. I think it's interesting to point out that he played eight more minutes than Iwobi. He played almost half the number of passes. But when he's playing the Theo role, that can work. When he's got to play on a Wobie's flank and we're playing both of them, it doesn't work. Tim, is is that sort of a fair assessment that Ox can come in for Theo? But if Ox comes in for a Wobie and Theo's on the right, that really changes what we're trying to do in possession. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the nail on the head, really, because Theo doesn't get involved in the build-up either. That's that's not what he's there for. He's actually kind of there Run to the get challenge. on the end of things. Yep. and Yeah, yeah, and, and create that kind of that presence and you know i know this is a phrase i used on the last podcast he kind of um operates outside of the structure of the team and and chamberlain was doing something similar yesterday i do think um as well there was an incident in the second half where chamberlain put a really good ball across the six yard box which um alexis didn't read um and also the ball over the top for ozil uh, for the lob which i for one think he should have scored um, that was played by Chamberlain as well, and that was played from the centre circle. It's quite an interesting place for him to pop up, really. Um, but given our kind of left-sided bias, I think, and with a with a full-back like Bellerin, um, you know, I said on the Reading pod that he's, he's attacking those half spaces quite a bit better. I know you do a lot of content, but I had no idea you did a Reading <laughs> podcast. That's <laughs> on the... And yeah, and attacking those kind of those half spaces, and and that that seems to be the, the kind of areas he's picking up um, are really really improving. So what you what you're not getting from Chamberlain at the moment, which I think he got a bit last season, are anonymous games. He's never anonymous at the moment. He's always involved, and gradually his end product is improving. It's not there yet, and you're right to say there were a few occasions where. You know, he didn't quite pick his head up or I think a bit like Theo does sometimes. He's just decided he's going to do something and that's it, come hell or high water. However, the situation evolves, he's doing it. And that means if he's putting a cross in, he's doing it. If he's shooting, he's doing it. Um, but I, I, th- I thought I thought he had a, a, a really decent game yesterday, actually. I, you know, I think seven and a half out of ten, uh, maybe something like that. Um, and I, I agree. I think he's a better fit. You know, I've said all season. My fear is that we don't have a like for like for a Wobi at all. And as could, could Ramsey be, be be the at yeah, least the guy yeah. to become that? Because Wobi might be needing a little rotation. Yeah, yeah. I I think so. I I could see that happening. The thing is, I'm not I'm not sure Ramsey. 
he does it in a different way. Rams is kind of an off the ball player, um, a bit of a metronome, whereas Awobi, you know, carries the ball. Um, and so I, I still see it working, though, for the same reason I think Ramsey worked on the right. And actually, I don't, given the looseness and freedom of, of that role, um, I don't think there'll be any difference if Ramsey goes and does it from the left rather than the right. I, I just don't see that being an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I thought Chamberlain, you know, excellent cross um, for the goal. And like I say, I, I think it looked like that's something that, that had been worked on. Um, and, you know, he, he got into some, basically, when a player's a bit down on his luck and a bit down on his form, a bit like a striker, it's that horrible cliche that, you know, at least he's getting in the positions. And I do think that at this point in time, that is a positive development for, for Oxlade-Chamberlain, that he is picking up good positions. And gradually, over the last few weeks, he's beginning to do a little bit more in those positions. He's not there yet, but... I think he's getting there. He wants to do so well. You know, it, it's not a criticism. I, I believe this is a player who puts tremendous pressure on himself and, and wants to do so well. And I think the problem is every single touch of the ball for him has so... You, you can see the, the burden of it almost. Um, and I think that burden starts to lift as he creates more end product. And then when he starts to feel like he doesn't have to win the game with every touch. I think he will come into the collective a little more. Um, I want to get to the the elephant in the room, Olivier Giroud, um, he, because he's the size of an elephant. And uh, I think if you, if you could plan exactly how the Burrow game should have gone, it's how the Sunderland game did go, with Giroud coming on and scoring with his first two touches and making an immediate difference. Paul, as far as Giroud coming off the bench and making that kind of contribution, do you think that? Well, let's let's get to that in a minute. First, just give me give me your thoughts on Giroud's contribution when he came off the bench. Look, he was great. Uh, two touches, two goals, and they were actually two beautiful goals. Can you imagine if we'd brought on Perez on seventy minutes and he scored those two goals? We'd be like. Oh Jesus Christ! We're set. We have we've two absolute winners as strikers. So, I mean, he was great. Uh, we did all collectively say Giroud. You know, he does kind of look pretty damn good when he comes off the bench on seventy minutes. He looks faster. He looks stronger. He's got the legs over the centre backs. It's a brilliant look for him coming off the bench. I also think that the bench in general. That's what I really felt. I had rediscovered in that game. It's like the beauty of having a strong bench, which to me, we haven't had for a decade. And we, you know, if we can just keep the buggers fit, we'll have a bench of somebody every game where you have three game changers, not looking at the bench and it's like, oh, fuck, let's bring on the fullbacks because that's all we got. So in some ways, the bench was as big a story to me as Jiru was. Um because in a way, how can you analyze his performance? He came on, had two brilliant touches, and the rest of it was just the Giroud we know. And, you know, the game was put to bed and you almost can't. There's almost no performance to talk to apart from two moments of brilliance. Yeah. Um, the one point I would diverge from Tim on is uh, I guess he was just floating it. Uh, you know, if Alexis can do everything Giroud can with headers... 
but he can't. He can do it occasionally. Well, he, Giroud, he can do I, it. Di he can do it differently, right? He's he's not going to be. He's yeah, not he does other things. Overpower the the central defenders. He's going to make runs into yeah. sp clever spaces and nip in ahead of them and things like that. Yeah, but Giroud was. I don't remember the stats, but I think I've seen one. Since he arrived, he scored more headed goals than anybody in the league, and by some way, I think. Um, but anyway, he is as good as stats. any player in the Premier League at at winning headers, both yeah. in the attacking box and in the defensive box. I mean, he is a phenomenal header of the ball. Yeah, and we saw it against Reading. I mean, you know, a foot either side. It was that was his first touch of that game too. Was it four four two when he came on, Paul? Um, I felt Alexis got pushed out to the left again. Sadly, that's how I felt it was it was going. Um, so you know, I, I kind of feel again. It was hard to say because as soon as we went a couple of goals up, for me, everything became less important, and people just kind of went with feel. At three, at three were, one, it turned into a free for all for for a few minutes, didn't it? Yeah, and. It, it was like field of force, and I don't know what the formation was. It just felt good, and we were killing them, and and they were in trouble. A funny moment in the middle of all of this discussion, uh, for those watching it on TV, they didn't show the Ramsey substitution. No, so like, he just kind of showed up on the just, pitch. <laughs> well, not only that, he shows up in the box in the build-up to the uh, third goal, and you're like, uh, Gibbs clatters it off the bar after a pass from some guy with blonde hair, and I, my first thought is Nasri. What the fuck? I had no oh, idea who it was. I had no idea. Yeah, who it I was. had no clue. I'm like, holy fuck! They smuggled Ramsey on. We got 12 players on the pitch. I was just like, it was all done during the celebration for Giroud's second, I think. Yeah. Um. um so, but we did talk in terms of the bench with Giroud and Ramsey coming on. So well, for me, I that was. The big deal. I'm going to come back to you on, on Giroud because we have a, a bet. Every season it seems like we have a bet like this. We have one. We're going to announce it momentarily. But, Tim, um, what was your take on not just Giroud's performance but how we played with Giroud on the pitch? Um, yeah, I, I think it confirmed what I always thought, that uh, in, he's perfect for that type of situation. And, you know, both goals were kind of trademark, really. Um you feel like if he'd have scored a hat-trick, he'd have completed it with, like, a flick at the front post. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really, really trademark. I've beautifully taken first one. That was not simple at all. It came at him at quite an awkward height, um, at quite a bit of pace. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of finish we've seen from him before once the ball's on his left foot and the header as well. Uh, when you look at it again on the replay, he initially, he slightly misjudges the flight of the ball and he jumps a bit too high, but kind of readjusts himself midair to get his head lower and get like the back of his head onto the ball to loop it over the goalkeeper. Um, and so, props to Gibbs on the first one, because one of yeah. the problems Giroud has is being a left footer. He doesn't have what Van Persie had with tucking it away with his right foot. Uh, yeah. and, and good crosses coming in from the left and a, a, a wing back getting in behind. You know, although we talked about a Wobie maybe having a quieter game, you kind of got to pair it up with a Wobie Gibbs, and that's the side that all the business was done on, uh, to your point, Elliot, in terms of versus Ox and Bellerin. So, and I thought Gibbs uh, I was very that, good. I, I think it will be interesting to see if he keeps his place in the side. Um I don't want to debate that too much just because there's there's other interesting stuff and we don't want to go on forever. But so, so Tim, do you 
I mean, he scores with his first two touches, but I'm also kind of curious to get your take on just how the the play flowed with him on the pitch differently than how it has been, you know, with, with this sort of mobile front line that we've been talking so much about. Um, I'm I'm not sure it really, really did. I think, you know, he scores with his very first contribution, and therefore it's, um, weirdly, it's quite difficult to read. It perhaps would have been um, a bit more interesting for the purposes of this discussion if things had gone on for five or six minutes and, you know, Sunderland had really reset and regrouped and reorganized. Well, right, because it opens the game right back up, right? You go, you go back up 2-1 exactly. and now they've got to come out at you and, and there's space and it's it's not trying to break down a, a packed defense. Precisely, mm-hmm. precisely. And, and actually, you know, I don't think Alexis would have scored the goal that Giroud did um, in, in that manner. Um, it's kind of a, a fairly typical Giroud goal and and, you know, to give more credit to Gibbs, fair play to him for, you know, a minute after Giroud came on, adjusting his delivery um, appropriately, you know, to, to readjust immediately and think, ah, oh, Olivier Giroud's on now. I can, you know, I can put a cross in and try and get it on his left foot. You know, that's, that's you know, some fair mental agility, I suppose, on his part. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think after that, I mean... I'm not sure it really did flow that differently after that because, I mean, Sunderland, that their heads dropped so, so far when that when that goal went in and people were streaming out of the exits because I think the Sunderland fans have seen this this film before several times this season and they're just seems they're to terrible. be... They're <laughs> terrible. Yeah, little to no belief in that team. And even when they got back to 1-1, I appreciate we turned it back around quite quickly that you never got the feeling in the stadium that they really really believed that they were going to hold on even for the draw. Um, so it, it, I think it's difficult to tell. I mean, from I think with Giroud, does he score with his first two touches if he starts the game? Probably not. No. I mean, um, almost certainly not. It's not like it can't happen, but no, probably not. No, exactly, because I think he has always been, a good, not even just because of his style, there's just something about him where he's he's good in that scenario, and particularly when defences are a bit tired or, you know, I, I think we said last You've been chasing season, Alexis, you know, yeah. halfway up the pitch and back and, and watching runners run in behind you, and now suddenly you've got this big, strong, physical striker that you've got to try exactly. to, you know, push out of, out of, the, out of the position. I. I don't envy defenders who have to deal with all that running around for 70 minutes and then take on a physical challenge like that. It is a perfect plan B. Um, and, and, Paul, that leads me to wanting to, to sort of bring up our, our debate. I said, and I don't know if we, we agree. Initially, I said, I don't think Giroud will get five starts in the league this season from now. And then I think I went to seven. You took the bet. I'm willing, oh, yeah. I'm willing to keep it at five, but and we did preface this by saying barring an injury to Alexis. Um my my rationale here is, regardless of what you think of Giroud, and stylistically he's never been my favorite. I think he is a phenomenal plan B. I think he's a phenomenal player and just the type of uh alternate solution. You know, we try to pick the lock for seventy minutes, then we try to batter it down for twenty. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um but I think the minute you bring Giroud in from the start, 
you are completely changing the system. First of all, if you play him with Alexis, you're moving Alexis back out to the wide position. You are changing the way Ozil sees runners. You are clogging up the room where Theo has been making some of his channel runs. And and you have to play totally differently, and the dynamic changes. It's not even a criticism of Giroud. It is a fact that you are you are changing the the type of play. And if you look at when we've been at our best over the last 12 months or so, 16 months, it's this period at the beginning of this season and the period at the beginning of last season when Theo played center forward and we had the more mobile front line. So my question for you is, um, why do you think, not why do you think, but do you, what's your take on how it impacts us if Giroud does come back? Because the reason we started the debate is offline, you were saying, um, Giroud, Giroud is sort of giving the manager a tough decision, and it's going to be tough to, to who to pick from. I don't think so because of the style changes. What would be your response to the idea that bringing Giroud in from the start disrupts stylistically what, what we finally seem to have discovered? I guess, you know, some of the key differences. I don't disagree with anything you said on our style or play, the desirability of it. That's my preference, too. I just... You know, I look at the manager's view of the team, and my reading of the manager is he likes Giroud more than you do, which wouldn't be hard. Uh, he rates him highly. Um, well, well and... we also got into a disagreement about whether he's always preferred to see him as a plan B or see him as a starter. And and you maintain yeah. that we have, both Tim and I, who I think agree on that point, overrate the extent to which the manager saw, saw him as a plan B. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I mean, undeniably, he was going for Suarez. Undeniably, he was looking for Iguain. He was looking for a worldie. There's no two ways about it. That isn't the same as thinking he had Peter Crouch in his team in terms of plan B. He rates Giroud very highly as a striker. He would love a worldie. Um, at but, the moment, but, of course, he given the opportunity, he, he both went with Theo as the starter at the beginning of last season and Alexis as the starter at the beginning of this season when he could have just said, I didn't get my worldie, I'm sticking with Giroud. He didn't do that. Great point. In both cases, it was because either Giroud wasn't available or was in, or the other times, like you quoted the point around which Theo started in the FA Cup, Giroud was just in the most terrible form. And certainly the manager has talked about at the start of this summer, you know, if you, especially when you read between the lines, his great problem and his great fear with Giroud is those, uh, the, when he gets into the doldrums for 10 games and doesn't get you a goal. But that's not the same as he, I want to relegate him to plan B. I think he rates him very highly. There was rumors of us being heavily chasing Griezmann, which I would strongly believe. And he would have wanted to play him with Giroud based on what he saw in the France uh, Euros. So, it, Do you think Giroud is still the first choice center forward right now at Arsenal? No. Okay. Nope. So how do you, but, so how do you bring him in I, though then, Paul? What, what does that yeah. do to the system? It, 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 let's say you believe they'll just rotate. Alexis will start some games and Giroud will start others. My analogy would be that would be like Leicester City last season playing Vardy some games and Giroud others. I mean, it, it couldn't be a more different system. That That's what the quandary is. But I don't think that the manager has resolved it into, oh, well, there's my plan A, and when he's not available, I'll play my plan B. Um, that's the challenger for the manager. Interviewed afterwards, he said, well, uh, there'll be plenty of games for both of them. 
I know he has to say something like that. Uh, but I can also play a 4-4-2. I can play Alexis through the middle. Uh, I can play Ozil on the wing uh, or behind them. I mean, when does Arsenal ever say that? Here's a guy trying to work out what he does with the Giro, who's just two, scored two worldy goals. And, you know, his relation, one of the difficulties for us is we don't have to deal with the squad, the personalities, the egos. The team and the style has to come first, but it's not a singular choice. So he's going to, I don't think Giro is going to be a productive member of the squad if he spends the next eight months waiting for 72 minutes every game. Well, I, I mean, he can find... play in the FA Cup. He can play against Ludogorets. He can, he can play in the, yeah, he... you know. So that's really what our argument and debate is about. That's what you think the manager should do. Uh, I would say I don't think it's what the manager will do. And we'll, f- and we'll find think, out, right? I think he has a conundrum. Yeah. So, I mean, look, do I think that he will rotate Giroud in under certain circumstances like the the you know around Christmas when there's a game, you know, 3 days apart? I think Lucas was brought in with the preference to be the guy who could rotate in because I think so so Tim, I mean, I'll let you get a couple words in on but this. At I mean, that time, yeah, just quickly, but at that time he didn't think Sanchez was an option as striker. Yeah, that, that's a fair point, too. We hadn't seen it work anyway. I mean, he may have had a mind to try it, but he hadn't seen it work. Tim, I mean, is, isn't is the problem that bringing Giroud on from the start isn't just a rotational option, it is a system change? And that the disruptiveness of that, putting aside for a minute the quality of the player, the disruptiveness of that stylistic difference makes it difficult to co- have cohesion from one game to the next. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think um, what's kind of interesting at the moment is that um, there's almost like two layers to our t- to our attack emerging. I think Giroud makes a bit more sense if one of the wingers is Chamberlain because those two kind of suit each other a little bit more and it does mean we're playing a different game. Um, but, you know, they're, they're both... Chamberlain's a bit more direct and Giroud is more the type of player that benefits from the type of player Chamberlain is. Whereas, you know, the, the, the first, the de facto first choice front three, for me, there's no doubt at the moment that it's Iwobi, Walcott and Alexis. And, you know, leaving the fitness situation aside, I bet my bottom dollar that against Spurs and Manchester United, that will be the front three he picks. And, the front three that the manager picks for games like that tells you who he thinks his, you know, who he thinks gives him the best chance of winning. Um, but I do agree with you. It's 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 not really ever been a question of the quality of Giroud. It's it's a question of the style. Um, and what and that style it, means for our most important players, namely Sanchez and Ozil, and how they perform exactly. With them on the pitch. Exactly, exactly. Now Ozil, Ozil, you know he. He provides plenty of assists for Giroud. He's a smart enough player to kind of adapt his game. But at the moment, what we've got is we've got Ozil and Alexis working right next to each other, you know, playing off of each other effectively. And that's a very, very good situation to be in. And I don't think you want now to push those two players further apart from one another, especially because this understanding seems to be developing with every game, it's all still quite new, um, mm. and I think they're both really enjoying it. 
And, you know, managers also have to take politics into account sometimes. And he's trying to convince those players to sign new contracts. And, I, you know, Alexis isn't a player that gives many interviews. Um, so we don't know how he feels about playing up front. But I think it looks like they're enjoying it. Um, and I think you've got a much better chance of convincing them to sign a contract if Arsenal are playing really good football and they're playing together and they're really enjoying it. I'm not suggesting they weren't enjoying it before, but if they feel like something special is happening here, then it's not just a question of what's better for the team. You know, in in terms of playing the long game and getting them to sign contracts, then, you know, if the, the manager will know how happy or otherwise Alexis is playing at number nine. He looks pretty happy to me at the moment. Um, and if he wants him to sign on the dotted line, then um, he'll keep him going there if that's where he wants to be. Yeah. Um, one more question for you about Giroud, because I, I think this is sort of part of, the, part of the problem for Olivier at Arsenal, both with the supporters and with the manager. How difficult is it for a manager, and, and to some extent um, for a for for supporters to warm to a player who goes through such vicissitudes, such highs and lows, um, a guy who can go nine games without a goal, who can get petulantly sent off just because he's aggravated and not in the mood. I mean, is one of the challenges with Giroud that, you know, for example, Giroud's a goal every other game striker. So is Alexis. But you trust mm. Alexis to get a goal every other game. You trust Giroud to get, yeah. like, six in four and none in 12. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Does that make him a really hard player for a manager to trust because you don't <laughs> – that barren spell, that 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 poor spell could always be around the corner? Yeah, absolutely. And also the type of player Giroud is, I mean, he's quite predictable. Um, whether you can cope with what he provides or not is the question, but if you can – then you completely nullify him. And if you can't, then, yeah, you know, he's, he's a real pain in the arse if you're a defender. With Alexis, I'm not, I'm not really sure how you defend against, against what he offers because what he offers is, is quite diverse. But, yes, that, that does make it an issue. But I always think that in terms of Jury's relationship with the fans, um, it, I, I think it would be it, – it's still pretty good. Um, he still seems fairly popular to me. Um, but I think he'd probably be more popular if he'd always been that plan B, you know, and actually what you'd probably get is people saying, oh, why don't we start him? He always, you know, scores off the bench and things like that. Mm -hmm. the, the problem in terms of popularity for him has always been that he's just not that top tier of striker that everybody's wanted. But I think most people acknowledge, acknowledge that, you know, he's perfectly good and has his uses. Um, but yes, it, it does make him slightly difficult to trust, particularly if that fallow period, as it did last year, comes during, you know, the real crunch part of a title race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so difficult because, I mean, you you need to be able to play in different ways. But I think from the start of the game, you'd like to have consistency about the way you play. And I think Giroud if he starts, not only doesn't give us consistency in terms of our style, but he's a player who, because of his inconsistency, just in terms of the level of his performances, I mean, he can look like a championship player for eight games and then really look like one of the best strikers in the league. Um, hard to have that variance. What you want are players who their level is always very high. Um, you know, maybe not 
always messy level, obviously, but very high. And and I don't think that's that's what it is with him, Paul. Um, just the one thing la- I'd add quickly mm-hmm. on that one though is if you rotate Giroud, uh, like I'm all for Alexis for most games mm-hmm. or all games, but in my scenario where Alexis gets more starts than Giroud, but Giroud gets some starts in certain games, he's going to be a bit more like when he comes off the bench. He's going to be fresher. He's going to be sparkier uh if he's fit but he's not playing every game part of it i think is you know different metabolisms different you know fitness levels he seems to be the slowest to come back at the end of the summer i think he's a big lad who doesn't do well over 45 55 games in a season yeah but he might continue to make it very hard for the manager uh, in a good way uh if he's getting a, a you know, a couple of games here, a couple of games there where he starts because it's the right kind of competition. You know, we've had an injury with a Wobie, so we want to switch. You know, there's all sorts of scenarios that the manager will look to as a good excuse to get Giroud in there without necessarily giving up on Alexis being his star, his his preferred striker. He, yep. My theory is he'll look for every excuse to find a way to get Giroud some starts. Well, we'll see. And, uh, and plenty of them. We'll place the bet at five, because that's what I originally said. I'd prefer it to be seven, Sucker. but we'll say five. <clears throat> I will say Sucker. absent an Alexis injury. And by an injury, I, I don't mean he's out a game. I mean, a, you know, an extended absence. I say Giroud gets okay. five starts in the league. Um, let's leave it there. Uh, Ludogretz, midweek. I think there'll be a lot of heavy rotation, and I think who gets rotated out may actually give us some window into what the starting lineup will look like for the North London Derby, which is next weekend. So you can start filling your pants now, and you'll be fully ready by then. Um, uh, Tim, you are off to Bulgaria. Safe travels. Thank you very much. You can find him on Twitter, at Stilberto. Read him on Arsblog, among other places. Paul, you are headed to, I don't know, the supermarket, maybe? Anywhere? Might do. Okay. Mike well, you. Paul's at Twitter uh, on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I'm not blogging or, or anything, but I am at Twitter. Cool. He's at Twitter. He's at Pause in My Pants on Twitter. Uh, or I'll just... be waiting by my Twitter account. I'll, I'll be sitting there. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, as always, it is a pleasure. We will come to you after the midweek uh, game in Bulgaria because Tim said he'd be available, so we're holding him to it. In any event, uh, enjoy the Champions League football. The Champions! And we'll be back to discuss that and the impending North London Derby. Cheers! Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.